Well, I heard uh, this week as I was preparing this message how many people were going to be gone this week, and I thought to myself, man, there will probably be about 20 of us here, but we'll all gather together and, and be able to worship, and I'm glad to see the numbers are, are really positive. Get a little feedback. Hot mic. Um, how are you guys? My name is Stephen Green. I'm 27 years old. I am a graduate of Manhattan Christian College of last May. Very exciting. <clears throat> I'm the youth director. Yeah, thank you. Let me just pat myself on the back real quick. No. Um, I'm the youth director for Mosaic at uh, the student ministry here at Lion and Lamb. And if you don't know, that's my beautiful fiance, wife-to-be, Grace Hoyt over there. And her grandpa, uh, John, John Bond, he's came to, to uh, hear the sermon today. So, sorry, Grace, I didn't mean to embarrass you, but I had to. Um, let's get down to business. Today I will be uh, teaching and expounding on um, 1 Kings 18, 17 through 40. It's a massive piece of text, but it's an awesome story. And it's basically, in short, entitled Elijah and the Prophets of Baal. Basically, or AKA, the shootout at OK Corral. If you've ever seen the movie Tombstone, because it has all the makings of a classic showdown. Um, I remember when I first became a Christian um, back in high school, the youth pastor at Northland Christian Church, um, he did a Sunday school lesson on this story. And for whatever reason, you know, teaching from the Old Testament sometimes is not too favorable to do for high school students, but for me personally, it, was, it has always put an impact on my mind. It was, it's still very vivid, and so I wanted to spend a moment to teach on that. Am I still getting... Is there anything I can do for that? Should I back up? Will that help? All right. Back in business. Check, check. Okay. Um... So, today we're going to be teaching on um, 1 Kings 18, 17 through 40. Um, but before I do, I want to start with an intro of asking you guys this question. Who here enjoys a good under, underdog story? Show of hands, right? We all think of certain movies that we really, really enjoy, like Remember the Titans or um, uh, Rudy, which I'll mention later. But I doubt there's anybody here that doesn't really appreciate a, a great underdog story. And I think um, the reason why is because those stories themselves kind of resonate deep within us. Um, after all, a tale of an underdog finds a person or group usually pitted against an opponent or situation in which they're overwhelmingly expected to lose or fail in their endeavors. Now, myself being a fan of his, history, per se, I begin to think of historical situations and when there is an underdog. Um, and the most prominent in my mind that I can remember from Western Civ was actually Hannibal and the uh, soldiers of Carthage battling, or the battle at the Battle of Cannae against the Roman forces. The Roman forces were so significant that they actually outnumbered the uh, army of Carthage three to one. Yet in that battle, um, the army of Carthage single-handedly annihilated the Roman forces. Um, a more popular example of an underdog or a story we find is that story I alluded to earlier, Rudy. Um, Rudy was a story about a true person if you guys didn't know this, um, named Daniel Rudiger, who was affectionately named Rudy, and which, of course, the popular 1993 film starring Sean Astin um, was, was, was named after. Um, Rudy came from a family of 13. And just so you guys know, if you thought the Vincent family was large, uh, 13 is pretty significant. Um, they were um, in a lower middle-class neighborhood, um, and it was growing up that they, they all had this passion for Notre Dame football, and despite being only 5'7 and 165 pounds, Rudy had a desire to play on that football team. 
Um, in fact, not only did he want to play, but he actually wanted to actually play in a game. And, you know, you watch the movie, and he's on the practice squad. He, he was like that in real life, and eventually, just like real life, he got to play in his first game and last game against Georgia Tech. And he got to play in two plays. And on the second play, as we all remember, he sacked the quarterback, and everybody picked him up and hoisted him on, his arms, on their arms, and they were all shouting, Rudy, Rudy. We can all remember that? All right? Classic underdog tell, and I love it. Um, the reason why I love those stories, again, so much is because we're able to relate to them personally. After all, we find ourselves feeling at times like the whole world is against us, that, that at, no matter what we're going to do, that we're pitted for failure. And it's kind of this story of the underdog that we, we kind of lays the foundation for talking about Elijah and the prophets of Baal, which is basically 1 verses 450. So before I start to enter into the, the main beef of the sermon, I would like you guys just to bow your heads with me and pray. Heavenly Father, God, again, thank you for this day. Beautiful weather you've given us, Lord. It reminds, me, reminds us of your sovereignty over all creation. Lord, I just ask now that you'd be speaking in our hearts. Today is a special day for us as a church family. Um, it's our day that we celebrate the Lord's Supper. Lord, would you just move in us as we encounter Scripture now, as we look at Elijah and his story and the way that you dramatically entered into the lives of Israel. Lord, we love you. And we thank you for all the good blessings you give us. It's in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So one thing you learn if you're a student of Scripture, if you've taken any Bible, cl- Bible classes, or if you've, you know, yeah, taken a good Sunday school class, is you learn that you need to put the story into its historical and cultural context. Okay, that kind of allows you to build a framework in the way that you want to look at the text itself. So we actually need to do that. We need to do a little bit of homework before we actually engage the story. And so we need to look at First and Second Kings as a book itself. First um, and Second Kings, the author is unknown, but it sort of chronicles the the death of David and sort of the the top of the of the uh, nation of Israel to almost a tornadic descent into full-blown paganism of the nation of Israel and later into its exile. And that's where we find the story of First and Second Kings talking about. Um, things are good at the beginning. If you read the beginning of First Kings, things are good. David, David is just passing away, who was a great king. Um, and then Solomon's there. And remember, Solomon had a tremendous amount of wisdom. He had built the temple. Israel as a nation was kind of front and center in the world, world scheme of politics and, and conquest. So things were really good. But soon after, things went completely crazy. Um, in fact, um, if you read through the book of 1 Kings, when you're looking at the kings after the, the, the nation itself divides into two kingdoms, Judah and Israel, um, the kings are noted as being, and, and, and the, the author puts this disclaimer, God puts this disclaimer that says that they each did evil in the eyes of the Lord. So things aren't looking good. And then you have Ahab, who's the king of, during Elijah's time. Um, and, and they even give Ahab even a stronger title than the kings before him. Um, in 16, verse 1630, um, Ahab was known for doing more evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. Ahab is portrayed as an evil man who obviously did not take Israel's God or faith seriously. Um, I don't know if it was something, um, whether he, he thought of his faith as more just socially acceptable, um, or if he what, didn't take it very seriously at all and just didn't believe, or if he was just, in fact, bent on doing evil. But First Kings does not paint the King Ahab in a positive light whatsoever. Um, 
so much was he a, a problem for God, um, especially when he goes on and marries the pagan um, queen Jezebel from a different, um, different nation. Um, in when marrying Jezebel, does she bring in her pagan religion, which is Baal or Baalism? Um, I want to spend one moment talking about that. Um, Baalism, from my research, isn't necessarily one god Baal. There is actually many gods um, called Baals, and then in the text it actually refers to Baals. Um, that's important to note because the Baal that they were worshiping at this time was actually considered a fertility god, um, usually represented in the statue or image of a bull. Um, what would worship look like for Baalism during, the Israel, during Israel's, um, or the reign of King Ahab for the nation of Israel? Um, two main things that I wanted to point out. First was ritualistic prostitution. So sexual immorality was running rampant. People were being enslaved as sex slaves, basically, during this time. And then also, um, the more horrible one was uh, human sacrifice, which usually resulted in children's sacrifice, or children being sacrificed to the god Baal. So it makes completely sense when in 1 Kings, the Lord is saying of Ahab, Ahab did more to provoke the anger of the Lord than all kings had before him. He had provoked so much anger in God that God was going to actually plague the nation of Israel with a drought. And the drought comes, and it's bad, and it lasts for at least three years. And that's where we find this story. There's a drought in place. The nation of, Ahab, or nation of Israel is in, in swift descent. And this is where we find the story. So if you could, now I'm going to start picking it picking apart. If you could turn your Bibles to 1 Kings 18, 17 through 40, and we'll look through the story itself. Starting in verse 17, it says, When Ahab saw Elijah... Ahab said to him, It is you, troubler of Israel. He answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have and your father's house because you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord and followed the Baals. There's that plural form of the Baals I was referring to earlier. Now therefore have all Israel assemble for me, um, for me to meet at Mount Carmel with the 450 prophets of Baal and the 400 prophets of Asherah who eat at Jezebel's table. So basically what Ahab's doing is he, he's, he's basically putting the blame on Elijah and his God for the reason why there's a drought. And, and, and Elijah, in a matter of fact, sort of way says, it's not me, it's you and your father, and your, fa- and your father's fathers who's basically brought the nation of Israel to this point. This is the reason why there's a drought. And so right after that verse, or right after he gets into saying this, you get this picture saying, all right, we need to settle this one way or the other. There's going to be a showdown. Like I said, a showdown at OK Corral. I can't help but think about that. And so the nation of Israel actually begins gathering uh, around the, um, the base of Mount Carmel for this dramatic display of which God is really the true God of Israel. Um, <clears throat> starting in 1820 through 30, I just want to read that, that section there. It says, So Ahab sent all of the Israelites and, and assembled the prophets at Mount Carmel. Elijah then came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping with two different opinions? If the Lord is God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. The people did not answer him a word. And then Elijah said to the people, I, even I, only am left as a prophet of the Lord. But Baal's um, prophet number 450, let two bulls be given to us. Let them choose one bull for themselves, cut in pieces, and lay it on the wood. Um, but no, put no fire on it. I will prepare the other bull and lay it on the wood, but put no fire to it. And then call on the name of God, and I will call on the name of the Lord. The God who answered by fire is indeed God. All right, I want to stop right there, and you guys are welcome to read through as I, as I elaborate on this. 
um, it's not just one thing to have be one guy against 450 prophets. If we just stop and read the story and just kind of buzz by the story itself, it's a great story in of itself. But if we dig just a bit deeper, we'll find some, there's, that there are a few things significantly that are going on there. And I just want to point these, there's three different things that I, that I noticed during my research that I would like to point out. The first one is this. Um, notice how the nation of Israel, when, when Elijah asked them the question, how long will you la- waver between two opinions, that no one replied. And the text actually makes a point of emphasizing the fact that no one did reply. The nation of Israel was absolutely content with serving two gods. A lot of commentaries that I wrote during this actually made the point of saying that they were completely content, and this would have been a huge psychological advantage for the prophets of Baal of, of kind of motivating them and saying, all right, we already have them on our sides. The second point I want to point out is that it's at Mount Carmel. It's significant. I don't know if anybody here other than myself has been to Israel. Um, when I was there, I actually got to see where this location is. On one side of the mount is the Mediterranean Sea. It sits on a ridge. It's the Mediterranean Sea. Very beautiful, lush area. On the back side lays a very fertile plain. Remember, Baal is a god of fertility. They're located on a fertile, fertile plain. This is basically the essential of giving the prophets of Baal home field advantage. So psychologically, again, this would have been a big boost for, for the prophets of Baal. And the third thing that's maybe not as significant is that they were actually given first choice of the bull that they were going to use and then also given all day to sort of summon the god of Baal, or, yeah, the, the false god of Baal. So, again, with that underdog theme, we start to see the ways in which Elijah was kind of giving them all the chips on their, on their table um, and having all this, the chips stacked up against them. <clears throat> so they begin to start, <clears throat> start conjuring up. They've met, they've cut the bull, um, they've, they've sliced it up, right? It's laid on the altar, and so they begin to sort of try to harness the prophet or the god of Baal. And I love this part. This is where it gets good because I'm, I'm kind of a, a humorous guy and I think this scene is absolutely ridiculous. Um, and I'll show you why. Uh, it says that they limped about the altar. Um, they, had, they had basically cried out, O Baal, answer us. At noon, Elijah mocked them, saying, Cry aloud, surely he is a god. At one point in verse 28, they said they, they, were, they were so desperate, the God, the, the God of Baal or the, prophet, or the God Baal, for him to come, that they actually cried aloud and began slashing themselves, hoping that the sight and scent and aroma of blood would be enough to entice Baal to come and show himself at this moment. I mean, that's a ridiculous scene of, of people just waving around, dancing. I imagine people doing cartwheels, you know, slashing themselves, bringing themselves to the point of tears, hoping that this God would come, but yet he, he does not show himself. And Elijah points this out. He's a clever guy. And Elijah starts poking fun at him. I don't know which translation you, which translation you have, um, but here's what Elijah says in verse 27. He says, Cry aloud, surely he is a God. Either he is meditating, or he's wandered away, or he's on a journey, or perhaps he's asleep and needs to be wakened. Depending on what translation you have, guys, sometimes it says that he is on a vacation, that he's, that he's on the bathroom, that he's, that he's relieving himself. That was actually the, the Jewish um, tradition, that he was actually relieving himself. He's mocking the god Baal. He's saying, look, where is he? Is he, is he on a vacation? Is he sleepy? Maybe he's tired. Maybe you need to guys cry louder. Maybe he's on the bathroom. I don't know, but he's not here. And I think that's so, that's so funny because here you have all these guys doing these dramatic acts and still nothing happens. So you reach a point in the story where, where Elijah's like, okay, enough is enough. Um, and verse 30 says, Then Elijah said to all the people, Come closer to me. 
And all the people came closer to him. First he repaired the altar of the Lord that has been thrown down here. So Elijah rebuilds an already existing altar that had been destroyed. That was an altar dedicated to the Lord God. Um, And then he says, Elijah took 12 stones according to the number of tribes of the sons of Jacob. To whom the word of the Lord came saying, Israel shall be your name. With the 12 stones he built an altar in the name of the Lord. Um, So... He, builds, he rebuilds the altar. He lays 12 stones. Obviously, we know what that means. 12 stones represent the 12 tribes or 12 uh, nations of Israel. It's very symbolic. And then he does something that just seems absolutely insane. As if, if, as if he has not given them enough advantages already, he begins to dig a trench, and then he, he, t- he tells them, take four jars, fill those jars up with water. Three times, pour them out, fill them up, pour them out, fill them up, pour them out. So a total of 12 times again, Um, representing the nation of Israel. To me, this is pretty dramatic. Remember, guys, this story is set in the backdrop or in the context that a severe drought has taken place. And so here you have a guy, Elijah, pouring out tons and tons of water onto the altar. In fact, the altar becomes so saturated that it begins to run down and begins to soak up and fill up the trench that's below it. So here we have this guy, Elijah, who, who has given them everything, every advantage, Every possible advantage for, for Baal to show up and, and nothing happens and then he soaks the altar and then we probably all know what's going to happen or how the story ends. And, and instead of dancing and flailing and crying out and cutting himself, Elijah offer, offers a very simple, um, wonderful prayer that I, when I read um, this week, especially a few times, I just absolutely love. Let me read it for you. O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God and a solid <coughs> in Israel that I am your servant and that I have done all these things at your bidding. Answer me, O Lord, answer me, so that this people may know that you, O Lord, are God and that you have turned their hearts back. Now, instantly, after Elijah pray, prays this prayer, a fire so intense and so consuming comes down on the altar that it does not only just take up the offering, not only the altar, but it is so intense that it takes up the stones and the dust and actually lick, the flames lick the water that's in the trench to the point of evaporation. So there's basically nothing left. And it's at that very moment that Israel's hearts kind of realize what's going on. And when I was thinking about this part, I, I be, it's hard not to think about the two towers, the story, the second and the three books, um, Lord of the Rings. If you guys remember with me, when um, King Theoden has been kind of under the rule of Saruman, and there's been that spell around on him and on his heart, and then if you've seen the movie, which we all probably have, remember that part where he's sitting there in the chair and his face is green almost, and he has that long beard, and it almost looks like there's been cobwebs kind of living in his beard. And then at one moment, Gandalf lifts that spell off of Saruman, and his eyes are lifted, and his face is transformed, and he begins just to get it completely that he's been under a spell, and then he's about ready to give up his kingdom for destruction. And he turns and he ends up fighting for them and has a huge role in the movie, right? And in the books as well. I feel like that's the way that Israel was. That at that one moment, their, their eyes had been lifted. Whatever veil that was over them had been lifted when they saw God um, demonstrate his power in that way. And their, their reply is this. <clears throat> the Lord indeed is God. The Lord indeed is God. That's all. They realized their wrongs. They realized how far off the path they were. <clears throat> Elijah tells the people to seize the prophets of Baal, and then according to the, the law in Deuteronomy 13, um, they go ahead and they, they 
um, kill the false prophets of Baal. And that's basically going along, like I said, with the customary action of Deuteronomy 13 is what to do with false prophets that's entered the community. All right, so there's the story. And now we get to the, what I love, the meat and potatoes of the whole thing. Mike, when I was talking to him last week, he, he said, Steve, make sure you ask yourself this question. So what? And you guys might be asking that question too. So what? What does this mean now? Now that we've read the story, how can we sort of dig from it and pull from it any application for ourselves? And so with that being said, I would like to offer three points that this story for myself, um, I think, really emphasizes for us in our relationship to God. First, when you feel alone, back up against the wall, that the odds are against you, remember, Christ is on our side. God is on our side. Guys, Elijah was against 450 prophets. But it's safe to say whether it was 10, whether it was 100, whether it was 450, or whether it was 450 million prophets of Baal against Elijah, the outcome would have been the same. When, when God is for us, nothing can ever stop us from achieving what we need through his power. <clears throat> the New Testament... Paul, writing to the Romans, reminds us in chapter 8, 28 through 31, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might also, um, they also might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. And then the famous part in 31 what then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? And that's, I know for me, that's been a very powerful verse in my own life. God gives us assurance that when we draw near to him and his truth and his purposes, that he is on our side. How absolutely comforting is that fact to know? I think in my own life, um, people that God has asked me to share the gospel with, uh, just this week I had a chance, uh, I work full-time for the city of Topeka Water, and there's a guy uh, that, I'd, that I'd been working on for a while, and we were at a time where there was people around, and he had been telling me um, about his life in the last year. Just a year ago, um, just this last week, his brother was murdered, um, and he just found out that his other brother is going to need a kidney re- replacement. Um, and so he was telling me all these things in a group of people, and I, and I began to get scared because I knew in my heart where I needed to be going. But yet, not wanting to, to offend people or not wanting to know how to turn it, um, I didn't know what to do. But thankfully, God just empowered me in a way to share the gospel with him in front of everyone, not caring about what other people thought or whatever people could think about the situation. God empowered me because I knew that what I was doing was actually the work of God. And when we do those things, God strengthens us. Maybe it's something, maybe God has called you to confront something that's going on in your life with other people and you're not sure how to, how to do that or you're just scared of what the outcomes may come. Remember, if you're in the will of God, if you're, if you're following his purposes in scripture, then he's on your side. Maybe God is calling you to do something um, out of faith that you're not sure what the outcome looks like. And it's scary. I know I had an offer to do another youth ministry and Grace and I really prayed about it and talked about it and I didn't know what the outcome would look like at the same time that Lionel Lamb was asking me to do youth ministry. But faithfully, I felt God was speaking dramatically into my life and through the power that he gave us, um, both of us, I decided to stay here, and it has been a huge blessing. Guys, remember, 
if it feels like your back's against the wall, that nobody's there for you, that you're absolutely alone, remember God is on our side. Point number two, do not, and I repeat, do not act like the people of Israel who stand divided between two opinions. Israel was in a critical juncture. God was giving them a choice. Who are you going to serve? Who, who, at the, this isn't the first time that he gives us that, that option or gives Israel that option. You guys remember in the book of, of Joshua, he calls them out and he asks, who are you going to serve this day? <clears throat> they were in a very critical juncture in their faith and then with their walk with God. And so I want to ask you guys that question. Who do you serve? And remember, do not stand between two opinions. Do not be a divided um, conscious. Who do you serve? Do you serve God or do you serve the world? <clears throat> I want to read a few stats, and before I do, I need to say this. When I was thinking about this, this point, it, it, it's hard not to think about the nation of Israel at that time in full-blown idolatry and then not want to tor- sort of transpose what that looks like into modern-day Western society and Western Christianity. Because I think we're more and more looking like the world than anything, any semblance of, of what true Christian faith looks like. So I want to read a few stats um, that I gathered from the Barna Group, which is a Christian think tank that does surveys um, sort of on the scope of, of Christianity in the Western world. Um, in their study, they found that the current divorce rate is 33%. So about one-third. For evangelicals, the divorce rate is a, only 26%. <laughs> we're not too far off from the world, are we? When they started asking questions in another survey, they started asking about basic uh, beliefs of Christianity. They asked a few questions to professed Christians, and they found that 48% believe that Satan is not an actual entity, but a make-believe character of, of sort of representing opposition towards God. They found that 22% of professed Christians actually believe that Jesus Christ sinned while, while on earth. And then they also believe that 38% um, strongly believe that the Holy Spirit is a symbol of God's presence and not an actual member of the Trinity. It appears that so many Christians are confused on either what to believe or they absolutely have no problem just kind of taking that salad salad bar approach towards Christianity. You know, over here on Sundays, I'll borrow a little bit of Christianity. You know, um, when things are rough, you know, I'll dabble in sort of that New Age mysticism, you know, because I like watching Oprah and I like Sylvia Brown. She says some really cool things, right? Or, you know, I believe some of the, t- the, the tenets of uh, Buddhism and, and medita- meditation and, you know, well, you know, transcendental yo- yoga meditation isn't that bad of a deal. It's, you know, it helps me relax and all those sort of things. And so we begin blending all these religions and we become in ourselves, and our conscience, a, a, a person divided. Guys, Scripture does not make, or does, let me say this. Scripture is very mysterious in some areas of our faith, but one area that, he is, that Scripture is absolutely direct, and I would say very bold, is that we as people, as Christians, cannot be, be a house divided. We cannot serve two masters. Christ says that. We need to stop acting like if that was something that we, we had a choice in, I really want you guys to meditate on this, this question. Am I giving half-hearted attempts to follow God? Is it financially? Am I tithing when it's convenient for our family to do so? I found myself, and the reason why, like I said, disclaimer, I'm, working, I'm a work in progress because I felt myself at one point in my life tithing when it was financially convenient for me to do that. Or when I did tithe, it was only 5%. Are you guys in that same boat? Are we, are we giving God only half of what's deserved of him? Are we giving half of what he deserves during our, with our time with him? 
Is God basically getting what's left over of us? Are we waiting to do our quiet times and pray for people after the fact that our whole list of to-do things has already been accomplished? Are we giving God half of our time in our hobbies and our activities? Our call is for serving the church and furthering the gospel. It's not golf on Thursdays. It's not fishing on Saturdays. It's not video games on Friday night. Those things are great. I'm not saying that they're not. They have their place. But if they are getting precedent over actually serving the community of God, guys, then where are our hearts at? Right? Christ tells us our treasure will be where our heart is. I like to say this. That part, that last part, offends me because I I think that a lot, not only offends me, but I think I'm very passionate about saying this because I think so many Christians are just so okay with sitting on the sidelines and doing absolutely nothing while the church just sort of declines. The community of God is what we are called to, yet many Christians are content never using the gifts that God has graciously given them and empowered them with. So they're just okay with attending church as more of a social gathering and and sort of picking and choosing what activities are going to serve in as sort of the taking on that consumer mentality of goods and service rather than working in an organic community that have been called by Christ with people who are literally labeled as Scripture as brothers and sisters. And it might be a little vague, but we're passing up the opportunity to serve with brothers and sisters who are literally called brothers and sisters in the community of God, and instead we're just okay with serving church occasionally on Sundays or going, you know, on holidays or whatever. So let me ask you this again. Are you wavering between two opinions? Finally, number three, ask yourself this question. Has the fire of God awakened your hearts to worship him? In that moment that the fire came down from heaven and ignited that altar, the veil had been lifted. It was a dramatic change of heart. Israel repented. And and they, they responded to God accurately. Is that same passion, is that same fire that God had put in their hearts, in your hearts as well, Fire is something that's used quite often in Scripture. Fire is used when Moses speaks to the burning bush, or God is encountering Moses in the burning bush. There's a pillar of fire that leads the nation of Israel through the wilderness as they wait for the promised land. The coal that is is white hot is put on the lips of Elijah in the the prophet book of Isaiah. And then, obviously, the most known to me that I can remember is the flaming tongues coming down on the apostles on the day of Pentecost. Fire is a dramatic way of God using fire to interact with his people. So let me ask you this. Are you on fire for God? Or are you just kind of like on, when you go on a camp out, those smoldering ashes that are just around the fire when you wake up the next day? Or perhaps you're like a pilot light, sort of flickering on and off waiting for a heat source. I think that some of us may... F- feel spiritually like those smoldering ashes. Remember, guys, our purpose is to glorify and magnify the glory of God and to serve Him. Christ tells us to seek first His kingdom in the Gospel of Matthew. Paul in Colossians tells us this, Since then you have been raised with Christ. Set your hearts on things above, where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. So many Christians feel weakened, burned out, or like I said earlier, just puttering along because we forgot to fix our eyes on Jesus. We have allowed ourselves to become too busy with doing life that we've forgotten to actually live life. We're just these little flames looking for the heat source. 
And guys, the heat source obviously is God. If we focus our eyes on him, if we do the things that are basically spiritual fuel, Mike always says this, read your Bible, read your Bible. Oh, and by the way, read your Bible, right? We do those things, we pray. We practice the spiritual disciplines. We spend time meditating on God's word. We spend time worshiping him. We spend time serving him. These are all powerful tools that we can use to sort of feed the flame of the fire that God has put in us. As we prepare to take the Lord's Supper, perhaps that should be our prayer, that God would ignite our hearts like wildfire out of control and hard to contain. Um, And if there's anybody here, maybe there's not even a fire there. Maybe you have not known Christ or you do not know what that's like. I guarantee you it is probably... I don't even know, probably, it is the most awesome thing that you could ever do and the most important decision you will ever make is to know Christ and to have a relationship with him. If you guys don't know this yet, one thing that I stress with the youth group is that God is actively pursuing them relationally. He wants a relationship with us. Remember, guys, it's, it's two ways. Maybe you just feel a little burned, you're not sure what to do. Remember that it's two ways. It takes our efforts of running back to God in order for that fire to be ignited. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, God, I just want to thank you for this day. I want to thank you for the story that you've given us of Elijah and the prophets of Baal. Lord, I know that you are speaking to us through Scripture, that you are speaking to us through others. Lord, I ask that our hearts would be receptive to your Spirit and the direction that you have for us. Lord, we love you and we thank you for the blessings you've given us, Lord. And today is the day that we celebrate the Lord's Supper. It's the day that we remember what Christ did for us on the cross. Lord, it was in that moment that that Christ felt extremely lonely and alienated. But afterwards, we find that he was exalted. Lord, we are so lucky for what you've done on the cross. And we're forever grateful for that. Lord, would you just now begin to prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper? Would you prepare our hearts to remember the things that Christ did for us on the cross and the saving grace that he has given us, Lord? Lord, I just ask that we would be seeking you in all things, whether it be our personal lives, our social lives, our jobs, Lord, that we would just have hearts that want to see you glorified, Lord. Lord, prepare our hearts for worship. Prepare our hearts for the Lord's Supper. We love you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.